When you stop and think about how our world is changing, how America is changing, you have to wonder, is it a positive or a negative change? It is, of course, a matter of opinion. And with over 330 million Americans, there are at least that many opinions. So it is up to you to decide which opinion appeals to you. Some media outlets will try to shape your opinion with propaganda and even outright lies or fake news. This is the Truth Hurts program, where I give you what I believe is the most important opinion of all, mine. My name is Steve Z. so sit back and relax and enjoy listening. You might even learn something. And through your feedback, I too might learn something. Well, hi and howdy, everyone. This here is the Colonel. You know which Colonel. I can't say my full name on account of I don't want to get sued. But it's me, y'all. The guy who's been licking my fingers over fried chicken since 1952. Well, by now, y'all have all heard the rumors, and guess what? They're true. Starting now, we're no longer able to call our chicken finger-licking good. One group said it was offensive in an era of the Kung Fu Wuhan flu, and nobody should be a-licking anything right now. Such a shame. There's nothing quite like licking a finger. After licking a leg, I always say. <laughs> then another group says we're just plain racist for promoting fried chicken in general in the year 2020. Hell, we might as well close up shop. Lock up our 11 spices and our herbs. Quit plucking, quit a frying. Hell, everything else is shutting down, so why not us? <laughs> anyway, this here's the Colonel saying bye-bye to all our fans. It's been real, it's been fun, but you know what? Lately, it ain't been real fun. Now go take your coin shortage elsewhere. Welcome back to the Truth Hurts program. This is the second edition for today, November the 9th, 2020. And I am already aggravated beyond belief. Inauguration Day, should Joe Biden actually come out the victor in this year's election, is not until January 20th, 2021. And yet the New York Slimes, which is best used as liner paper in a birdcage to pick up bird crap, has put an article out that has my blood pressure rising. It says, quote, the title, As Biden plans transitions, Republicans decline to recognize his election, unquote. It ain't over till the fat lady sings, and she ain't singing yet, New York Slimes. We still have court challenges and recounts to consider, New York Slimes. Their article, written by Luke Broadwater, says President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. prepared on Sunday to start building his administration even as Republican leaders and scores of party lawmakers refrained from acknowledging his victory out of apparent deference to President Trump, who continued to refuse to concede. I'm going to stop for a moment. They obviously don't remember 2000 when Al Gore said, I won, I won, yay, and he lost to George W. Bush. With Mr. Biden out of the public eye, the article continues, as he received congratulations from leaders around the world, his team turned its attention to a transition that will swing into action on Monday with the launch of a coronavirus task force and swift moves to begin assembling 
his team. Stop. He is going to put a coronavirus task force together? How could it possibly be any better than the one put together by your president, the current president that is still serving Donald Trump? How could it be any better when the virus's vaccine has now been basically given a go-ahead with a 90% approval rating or a success rating, rather? The article continues, but more than 24 hours after his election had been declared, stop, declared by who? You, the New York Slimes? Who? CBS? ABC? It has not been declared because the Electoral College has not voted yet. There are recounts underway. They're still counting the actual votes in several states. Declare my ass. The article says, but more than 24 hours after his election had been declared, the vast majority of Republicans declined to offer the customary statements of goodwill for the victor that have been standard after American presidential contests as Mr. Trump defied the results and vowed to forge ahead with, quote, long shot lawsuits, unquote, to try and overturn them. While some prominent Republican figures including the party's only living former president, George W. Bush, called Mr. Biden to wish him well, most elected officials stay silent in the face of Mr. Trump's baseless claims that the election was stolen from him. Stop. It's not baseless. We have evidence. We have video evidence of vote tampering in multiple polling places. The article continues. While Mr. Biden did not respond to Mr. Trump's attacks on the result, he was also not waiting for a concession. On Sunday, Biden unveiled his official transition website as he prepared a series of extensive executive actions for his first day in the Oval Office, which doesn't happen until January 20th, idiot! Including, he will immediately rejoin the Paris Climate Accord... He will move aggressively to confront the coronavirus pandemic. Really? How? The vaccines developed under the Trump administration are ready for dispersal. Yeah, coronavirus task force, Mr. Biden. Give me a break. He will also restore labor organizing rights for government workers, aiming to unwind Trump's domestic agenda and screw up the U.S. image in the world. Of course, the article says repairing the United States image in the world. The article continues, but Republicans' silence suggested that even in defeat, Mr. Trump maintained a powerful grip on his party and its elected leaders who have spent four years tightly embracing him or quietly working to avoid offending him or his loyal base. For many prominent Republicans, the president's reluctance to accept the election results created a dilemma making even the most cursory expression of support for Mr. Biden seem like a conspicuous break with Mr. Trump. Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri was the most senior Republican to suggest that Mr. Trump had most likely lost and cast doubt on his allegations of a stolen election, but he stopped short of referring to Mr. Biden as the president-elect in an exceedingly careful television interview. Blunt, the chairman of the Rules Committee, said on ABC's This Week with George, I'm a fan of Bill Clinton Stephanopoulos, it's time the president's lawyers present the facts, and it's time for those facts to speak for themselves. 
It seems unlikely that any changes could be big enough to make a difference, but this is a close election and we need to acknowledge that. I look forward to the president dealing with it however he needs to deal with it." Unquote. At the White House, there is little indication that Trump is dealing with it at all. He played golf for a second consecutive day at his private club outside of D.C., and he reiterated a claim by Newt Gingrich, the former Republican Speaker of the House, who told Fox News, I think that it is a corrupt stolen election. Privately, the president's advisors, several whom have quietly been candid with Mr. Trump that the chances of success in any challenge to the election outcome were not high, had concluded that they had little option other than to allow the president to keep fighting until he was ready to bow to the possibility of a loss. On Friday, a large group met with the president in the Oval Office to discuss a way forward, giving him a brutally honest assessment of his likelihood of prevailing. After another meeting at campaign headquarters on Saturday, where political aides laid out the small chances of changing the outcome of the race, Jared Kushner, the president's senior advisor, asked the group to go to the White House to outline it for Mr. Trump, according to people briefed on that meeting. Campaign officials, however, continued to discuss their legal strategy for challenging the election results and named Representative Doug Collins of Georgia, who lost a bid for Senate on Tuesday, to lead their recount effort in the state. He didn't lose. There's a runoff election, New York Times. Can't you get your stuff straight? On his first full day as the president-elect, Mr. Biden kept a low profile. That's code word for he hid in his basement, as he always does. After all, he gets up, especially on a Sunday, supposedly to attend Mass, and then he goes back to his basement where he sleeps after a short visit to visit the cemetery where his son Bo and his dead wife Nelia and their daughter Naomi are buried. In a sign of one specific stylistic change coming to the White House, he also stayed quiet in another way. Aside from circulating a video posted by his presidential transition team, he had not sent out a single tweet Sunday morning. Who cares? You don't want to tweet? Your feeble arthritic fingers probably can't work a keyboard. Meanwhile, leaders around the world sent congratulations to gropey Joe Biden, underscoring the international community's hopefulness to accept the results, even by those who cultivated close personal ties with Trump. Supposedly among those who congratulated Gropey Joe were Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, Boris Johnson of Britain, but a few refrained, including the leaders of Russia, China, and the Ukraine, oddly enough. I guess Joe said, y'all need to keep quiet till after I take the oath. Now, there are signs that Trump is going to come under increasing pressure to go ahead and accept the election results. The Center for Presidential Transition, a nonprofit that assists in transfers of power between administrations, called on the Trump team to immediately sign the post-election transition process. While there will be legal disputes requiring adjudication, the outcome is somewhat clear that the transition process must begin, according to members of the group's advisory board. They wrote in a letter earlier and was published by Politico. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican senator from Kentucky and the majority leader, declined to say anything since Friday before the election results have been published. And that's a wise thing to do because they're still counting votes and there are recounts. He did release a generic statement encouraging officials to, quote, count all of the votes, unquote. 
No member of his leadership team has either, apart from Blunt's carefully worded statement, said anything about accepting Biden as the new president. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California said every legal challenge should be heard. Then and only then will America decide who won the race. It makes sense. Why would you call the presidential race early without having all the numbers? It makes no sense at all, especially in such a hard-fought and close election. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said... Do not accept the media's declaration of Biden. He called the election contested and urged, Do not concede, Mr. President. Fight hard. Those comments reflected the advice of some of Trump's top advisors, including Rudy Giuliani, the personal attorney, who urged him, the president, to continue to fight. A remarkably small number of Republicans called for the country to move on and acknowledged Biden's victory. They were governors of blue states, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, Larry Hogan of Maryland, and Phil Scott of Vermont, who are kind of just doing it because if they don't, they won't get reelected. What can I say, folks? This thing is probably over. Biden will probably win because of all of the widespread cheating and fraud and irregularities that are continuously being pushed on social media until of course Facebook and Twitter take them down with no justification to do so other than the fact that they want to say neener neener to Donald Trump. The bottom line is there are legal challenges and we do have a justice system, a court system that must hear those legal challenges. And if At the end of those legal challenges, it is proven that Biden won and there's no way to turn it over. Then Trump should graciously tell the man congratulations and move on. After all, he doesn't need to be president again. He has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that an outsider to politics can come in and run a country successfully and then turn it over to a guy who's been in politics for 40, almost 48 years now and has zero accomplishments to show for it. I, as I posted last week on social media, I am secure. I do not care from a financial standpoint personally who sits in the big leather chair at 1200 Pennsylvania Avenue. I have my finances in order. I have my ownership of my assets in order. I have a well-divested portfolio. I am lucky. It is the young who blindly voted for this clown and his liberal agenda who will ultimately pay the price because they will at some point have to go out and finance a house or a car or something else. And when the interest rates start to rise exponentially, because of the proposed economic policies of gropey Joe Biden, and heaven forbid, should he step down, be impeached, or be forced to resign for his declining mental faculties, Lord help the young of our country when people like Camel Toe Harris get into the office of the presidency. God help us all. This is the Truth Hurts program. We'll be right back. This is the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. Sit back, relax, and let the truth massage your brain. It will be a welcome relief from all the liberal rubbish the mainstream media has been feeding you. We tell it like it is. 
House Majority Whip, AA 13% Minority Member James Clyburn criticized calls to defund the police during several media appearances on Sunday, saying that that phrase, defund the police, actually hurt Democrat congressional candidates and could potentially derail the bowel movement. Oh, I'm sorry, the Black Lives Matter movement. That's what he said, folks. Clyburn said on CNN's State of the Union that he'd spoken with the late Representative John Lewis about that phrase this summer before the old man died, and the two concluded that it had the possibilities of doing the BLM movement and current movements across the country like Burn Baby Burn in 1960 derailed the causes that they were trying to help. Clyburn, a prominent student activist during the Civil Rights Movement, who has ascended to become the nation's most powerful black legislator, has repeatedly denounced calls to defund the police as, quote, sloganeering, unquote, that harms the overall cause of the Black Lives Matter movement. The South Carolina Democrat points to his own generation of activists' experience with provocative catchphrases for his reasoning. He said of the phrase, burn, baby, burn, which became a popular song and chant during the 1965 Watts riots, and again later during the riots that followed Ma and Lufa Kang Jr. back in 1968, quote, we lost the movement over that slogan. Clyburn also cited calls to defund the police as a reason why Democrats lost key races for Congress in the election saying those headlines can kill a political effort. Clyburn said on NBC News' Meet the Press, I really believe that that's what cost Joe Cunningham his seat, referring to Cunningham's Republican challenger Nancy Mace, who said, defend, not defund the police, hijacking and capitalizing on the phrase defund the police. Jamie Harrison started to plateau when the defund the police message showed up with a caption on TV run across his head. That stuff hurt Jamie, Clyburn said. And of course, Harrison lost his bid to unseat Republican incumbent Senator Lindsey Graham by more than 10 percentage points. And Clyburn directly blames the whole defund the police slogan and movement to what cost Harrison that particular seat. Calls to defund the police gained prominence this summer during the national protests for so-called racial justice after the killing of the criminal George Floyd. He actually died of a drug overdose in the street, but a white cop was blamed for his death, as you all may remember. The phrase varies in meaning from calls for police reform to reallocation of resources from law enforcement to social services all the way down to a full defunding and abolition of police forces. Clyburn has not been shy about the electoral consequences of that rhetoric phrase, emphasizing in June at the height of the protests that, quote, we need the police, we want the police, they have a role to play, unquote. Clyburn's critique is the idea that the phrase distorts the intentions of activists who support using the term. 
Clyburn said on MSNBC back in June, I don't want us to allow sloganeering to hijack this movement and cause people of goodwill to resist making the changes we need to make. Even as some public opinion polls on police officers themselves have fallen sharply, polls find that most Americans oppose defunding the police when they're asked. Polling at the height of the protests this summer found only 31% of respondents supporting defunding the police. A July study from the Pew Research Center also found that three quarters of Americans support keeping funding for their local police departments the same or even increasing the budgets. Black Americans and Democrats are most open to sweeping police reform, although polls consistently show both of those groups are less enthusiastic about a complete defunding of the cops. So there is some common sense in the Democrat circles and black community, apparently. As I've said all along, in those Democrat-controlled, mouse-infested, rat-infested crap holes, those inner cities where the Democrats have 91% of the registered voters, I wish they would go ahead and defund the police and let the law of the jungle take its toll. If they kill each other off, those cities might have a chance of coming back. Ooh, this is the Truth Hurts program, and we'll be right back. Now that we have unwisely selected the party of socialism, communism, Marxism, Leninism, and Nazism, you must be very careful of your social media presence. Anarchy, rioting, looting, arson, assault, and battery are just the beginning. Thought control, mind control, and complete control of the media are the new normal. Prior to the election, the party began monitoring and recording your every conversation, text message, social media post, your likes and thumbs up responses. They have already begun developing a file on you. And if they disapprove of your file, you will be subject to punishment or conditioning. Freedom of speech, of religion and of expression will be the first to go. They will be coming for your Christian Bibles. Total censorship will follow. The suppression of conservative ideas is already underway. Next, they will be coming for your guns. Following that, they will come for your private property. Taxes will be increased on all in our nation to pay for the massive social programs they have planned for you. Then, reparations for slavery and for intolerance against the LGBTQRSTUV community will follow. You shall be branded. Mark my words. This is the mark of the beast. The beginning of the end times. It is truly the end of days in America as you know it, and the start of a complete loss of liberty, surrender of society, and the ushering in a total governmental control of every aspect of your life. May God have mercy on all of our souls. It may sound extreme, but it is highly possible, very likely, that this could be the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Congress is welcoming 13 new GOP women into the House of Representatives, including a Republican from Florida named Kat Kamek. She told the Fox and Friends television show that she's gone from being homeless to being a U.S. representative. She says, I'm so honored that I have the trust and support of the constituents of Florida's 3rd Congressional District. Only in America can someone go from homeless to the House of Representatives in less than a decade. 
She will be joining the 117th Congress as the youngest GOP woman in history. She says it has her feeling so incredibly humbled and grateful. In 2011, the Kamek's family lost the cattle ranch she grew up on due to a failed Obama-era program. According to her website, her family was forced to evict and pushed into homelessness for months. Later that year, Representative Ted Yoho, a Republican from Florida, invited Kamek to join his campaign, upon which she served as his longtime deputy chief of staff and his campaign manager. As a representative, Kamek from Florida said it's important to share the American comeback story like hers in order to defend the construct of our Constitution. In order to serve and to take the oath to our United States Constitution, you have a long road to travel, she said. For me, being the daughter of a single mother, our family losing everything, when we share our stories and show people that you can really achieve beyond your wildest dreams, I think that is what brings us together. My story is not a Republican story. It's not a Democrat story. It is an American story. At this point in time in our divided nation, we need people that look at the problems and solutions as Americans, not one party or another. Congratulations, Ms. Kamek. I hope you serve your nation well on all issues. As I reported in the past, I think as more and more people are called before the courts to answer for their crimes, those who don't get quote-unquote Hillaried or suicided are going to be leaving our nation in droves. One example is the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. He's finalizing a plan to become a citizen of the island of Cyprus. According to Recode, he will become one of the highest profile Americans to take advantage of one of the world's most controversial passport for sale programs. Schmidt, one of America's wealthiest people, and his family have won approval to become citizens of the Mediterranean nation, according to a previously unreported notice in the Cypriot publication in October. While it is not clear exactly why Schmidt has pursued this foreign citizenship, the new passport gives him the ability to travel to the European Union, along with a potentially favorable personal tax regime. Follow the money, people. The move is a window into how the world's billionaires can maximize their freedoms and finances by relying on the permissive laws of the countries where they don't even live. Schmidt's decision in some ways mirrors that of another famous tech billionaire, Peter Thiel, who in 2011 controversially managed to secure citizenship in the nation of New Zealand. They're doing this to dodge taxes. And they're doing it because they know that taxes are getting ready to go through the roof under a gropey Joe Biden, Camel Toe Harris regime. Uh, excuse me, administration. No, you had it right the first time. Interest from Americans in non-American citizenship has been spiking, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, and more and more so as Biden's lead in the polls started to rise. And you remember that the ability of Americans to travel abroad has been severely limited and curtailed due to the Wuhan China novel coronavirus of 2019. But experts say some of the increase is due to concerns about the political situation about to unfold in the U.S. 
It is uncommon to see Americans apply to the Cyprus program, according to published data and citizenship advisors who work within the country have said. The program is far more popular with oligarchs from the former Soviet Union and those from the Middle East. It's become mired in so many scandals that the Cypriot government announced last month it was going to eventually be shut down. A representative for Schmidt declined to comment on the move or why Schmidt has decided to make it. The Cyprus program is one of about half of a dozen programs in the world where foreigners can effectively purchase citizenship rights, skirting any residency requirements or lengthy lines by making a simple payment or an investment in the host country. You or I, uh-uh, we're stuck here. But billionaires, they can do what they want, right? Cyprus and this type of policy has become the latest way for billionaires to go around the world borderless and take advantage of each foreign country's laws, moving themselves offshore just like they move their assets offshore to avoid paying taxes. Small, financially struggling countries like St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean have embraced the idea over the decades, raking in money they would otherwise never see in exchange for simply granting citizenship to some rich billionaire. But what can be good for one country can be bad for the world. Anti-corruption activists have grown deeply worried about a race to the bottom with these programs, concerned that criminals can purchase foreign citizenship to escape prosecution in their home countries, or to funnel drugs or drug money through the friendly borders, or even to hide their assets from the tax authorities. The Cyprus program in particular, despite helping to save the country after its 2013 bankruptcy, has brought in $8 billion in people buying their citizenship. The lion's share of those 4,000 Cyprus citizenship recipients since 2013 have mostly been wealthy individuals from Russia, according to the people who advise these individuals on obtaining Cyprus citizenship. It has historically not been marketed to Americans whose passports usually allow them to travel freely in Europe. It is not unheard of, however, for Americans to take advantage of the program and the tax loopholes. Advisors say it's been happening more frequently in the past few months, especially since Joe Biden's presidency became more likely in the polls. An Al Jazeera investigation undercover discovered the identities of 2,500 people who bought citizenship in the country of Cyprus in the past two years. 32 of those were Americans. It is not known what role the coronavirus or new travel restrictions might have played in the Schmidt decision to apply to Cyprus. He likely applied about six months ago when the pandemic was raging or about a year ago when it had yet to begin, according to advisors, they're not sure. Schmidt's wife, a philanthropist, Wendy Schmidt, and his daughter, the media executive Sophie Schmidt, also applied and were approved, ironically, according to a listing in the Cypriot publication Alithia. One reporter noted, a reason to have a plan B during COVID as the possible reason for Schmidt doing the citizenship change is because Eric Schmidt cannot travel to Europe 
He's like everybody else, a lot of other high net worth people who want to go to Europe but cannot because Europe restricts American citizens, simply subverted and sidestepped the process by getting a citizenship bought and paid for to a nation to which Europe does not restrict travel. Individuals who claim citizenship in Cyprus can be attracted by the reduction in their tax burdens, especially if they're willing to renounce U.S. citizenship altogether. Immigration attorney Andy Simatweek said that his only American client who had claimed Cypriot citizenship did so to avoid paying U.S. income tax. The way that program works is that once a foreigner lays down between two and three million dollars worth of investment in Cyprus, typically through a real estate purchase, they can apply to what is technically called the Citizenship by Investment Program. After the government reviews the applicant's background, conducts a security check, and hosts a visit from the foreigner, their application can simply be approved. Schmidt, with a net worth of $15 billion and many homes around the U.S., is a titan of the tech industry. He was a longtime CEO of Google, and he helped make the company into an international powerhouse, and he served as the tip of the spear of the company's U.S. lobbying program. He stepped down in 2011 and left the board last year, but he still serves as a technical advisor and is one of its largest shareholders. And nowadays, he spends most of his time as an investor, a philanthropist, and a democratic political donor at Schmidt Futures, the organization that gives away he and his wife's money, speaks out on issues like competition with China, and talks about how Silicon Valley can cooperate with the U.S. military. While he was at Google, Schmidt was a proponent for the company, paying as little in taxes as possible, even if that meant capitalizing on foreign countries' tax rules. The company's long been dogged by allegations that it was not paying its fair share of American taxes by utilizing the foreign tax rules in place in parts of the world like Bermuda or the UK. Schmidt said in 2012, quote, I'm very proud of the structures we set up. We did it based on the incentives that the governments offered us to operate. It's called capitalism, unquote. But yet, when Donald Trump used that very same language to defend his taxes in 2018 and 2017, he was called a traitor. Everyone said Donald Trump didn't pay his taxes. But this guy's the former CEO of Google and a Democrat contributor. So he gets to call it capitalism. The double standard is alive and well, folks. And this is the Truth Hurts program where we call out the double standard every chance we get. We'll be right back. This is the Truth Hurts program. Now, I love it when my robot butler, the British Alfred, has something new to say. And in case gropey Joe Biden does win the presidency, I believe this is how I will announce him whenever I mention him going forward. The silent partner known as the big guy, the master of foreign influence peddling, the father to a cocaine-addicted horned dog son who did his own brother's widow, the 10% kickback-taking senile, undemented, mumbling, fumbling, stumbling, crumbling, bumbling, sleepy, creepy, touchy, feely, mopey, dopey, gropey, hair-sniffing, little girl, groping, election-stealing, communist at heart, 
Beijing Joe Biden. Yeah, that pretty much wraps it up there. That's a damned fine description. Thank you, Alfred. I appreciate that. This is the Truth Hurts program. And from the What You Gonna Do For Me files, a letter has been sent from the co-founder of BLM saying, we want something for our vote. Patrice Cullors, one of the leaders of the bowel movement, I'm sorry, the Black Lives Matter movement, has sent a letter to President-elect, supposedly, Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Camel Toe Harris, first congratulating him on their win. Cullors also requested a meeting with the pair to, quote, discuss the expectations that we have for your administration and the commitments that must be made to black people, unquote. Noting that black people played a vital role in delivering the election outcome, she called on Biden and Harris to make a, quote, well-thought-out, community-driven, fully-resourced agenda that addresses the particular challenges faced by black people, unquote, a top priority. She wrote in the letter, Congratulations on your election to the presidency and vice presidency of the United States. Like so many, we are relieved that the Trump era in government is coming to a close. Colors said the BLM movement wants to be actively engaged in the transition team's policy planning and policy work. She wrote, Without the resounding support of black people, we will be saddled with a very different electoral outcome. In short, black people won this election. Alongside black-led organizations around the nation, Black Lives Matter invested heavily in this election. We want something for our vote. We want to be heard and our agenda to be prioritized. So you see, boys and girls, pandering has a price. According to exit polls, 87% of black voters chose Biden, while only 12% went for Donald Trump. Their votes were crucial in flipping the battleground states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and may likely have been the cause if the courts don't overturn the election to give Biden his 270 electoral college votes. In her letter, Cullors noted that black people are the most consistent and reliable voters for Democrats and are truly living in a crisis in a nation that was built on our subjugation. Up until this point, the United States has refused to directly reckon with the way that it devalues black people and devastates our lives. This cannot continue. Black people can neither afford to live through the vitriol of a Trump-like presidency or through the indifference of a Democrat-controlled government that refuses to wrestle with its most egregious and damnable shame, unquote. She noted that both Biden and Harris discussed addressing systemic racism as central to their election campaigns and had expressed regrets about their records on issues impacting black people. I'm going to stop for just a moment. The co-founder of the bowel movement noted that both Biden and Harris discussed addressing systemic racism central to their election campaigns and that they both expressed regrets about their own records on issues impacting black people. In other words, Ms. Cullors and her organization is too stupid, gullible, 
ignorant and uneducated to see that for the past 60 plus years, the Democrats have, every four years, every election cycle, made promises to black people that they did not deliver on. And they refuse to see all of the accomplishments for the black community that Donald Trump ushered in during the first three and a half years of his presidency. And now, them chickens bees coming home to roost. The blacks are now going to demand that gropey Joe Biden and Camel Toe Harris pay them back for their votes. In their victory speeches that they gave on Saturday night, premature though they may be, both Biden and Harris acknowledged and thanked the black community. Yeah, the hell with the white community. Who cares about the majority of Americans? We're going to pander to the 13% double-A minority hyphenated American crowd. Yay! Black women are the backbone of our democracy, Harris said. She will be the first woman, as well as the first black person and first Indian American person, dot, not feather, to serve as the vice resident. Now, some of you have called and asked me, why do you call her the vice resident or Joe Biden the vice resident? or Obama, the former resident. Because that's all they were. They were not my president. They were residents of 1200 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House, but they were certainly not the president. In a subtle nod to the BM protests that have taken place this year, Camel Toe Harris also noted that Americans, quote, marched and organized for equality and justice for our lives and for our planet, and then you voted. You delivered a clear message, unquote. Yeah, that's not a subtle nod. That's a, if we don't get our way, we're going to riot in the streets and burn buildings and loot and destroy property and assault people. It's animal behavior, camel toe. Joe Biden mumbled through his remarks and said, The African-American community stood up again for me. I will always have my back and I'll have yours. Really, Joe? Pander? to the minority. The official Biden-Harris transition website has listed racial equity as one of its four priorities. The others are COVID-19, the Wuhan China novel coronavirus Kung Fu flu, economic recovery, and climate change. And they outlined ways the administration intends to tackle systemic racism in the U.S. In her letter, Cullors told Biden and Harris, quote, the best way to ensure that you remedy past missteps and work towards a more just future for black people and by extension to all people is to take your direction from black grassroots organizers that have been engaged in this work for decades with a legacy that spans back to the first arrival of enslaved Africans. We look forward to meeting with you at your convenience to begin the immediate work of black liberation. I have no words. The pandering continues. And this is the Truth Hurts program. He is saying what you know you are thinking. Steve Z, telling it like it is. Obamacare, or the Not-So-Affordable Care Act, will face another Supreme Court test on Tuesday, tomorrow, and this time, they'll be doing so with a 6-3 to three conservative majority. The case was the primary focus of Democrats during the confirmation hearings during Justice Amy Coney Barrett last month. 
and supposedly more than 20 million people could lose coverage if Obamacare is eliminated. A decision is expected to come by the end of June, and there ain't a damn thing Joe Biden can do about it. The landmark health care legislation known as Obamacare will face its third test at the Supreme Court before the most conservative panel of justices that have sat upon the bench in decades. The top court will hear arguments on Tuesday in a challenge to accept the constitutionality of the Not-So-Affordable Care Act, which was signed into law by resident Barack Obama back in 2010. The case was a primary focus of Democrats during the confirmation hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett last month. If you recall, Democrats cried and bitched and pissed and whined and moaned and warned that confirming Barrett by providing a court a 6-3 majority of Republican-appointed justices could effectively doom Obamacare finally, one can only hope. If the court strikes down the law, as many as 20 million Americans are supposedly going to lose their health care coverage. I don't think so. The Obamacare joke of a law went into effect about 10 years ago and forced healthcare industry to change some of its way of doing business, but it actually caused more people grief in their selection of healthcare options. The spreading coronavirus pandemic, which has killed at least 20,000 people in the U.S., but is being blamed for as many as 220,000, has sparked a theory a fear that people might lose coverage and that they will call COVID-19 a pre-existing condition. If the high court strikes Obamacare down, Biden will likely have few options to resuscitate a new version of it, and he has little time to do so. Democrats are projected to retain the House of Representatives control, but their path to the Senate majority is very narrow, with control of Congress's upper body likely coming down to those two runoff special elections in Georgia to be held on January 5th. I expect lots and lots and lots of foreign money to pour into that one. The top court has twice reviewed the Not-So-Affordable Care Act, once in 2012 and once in 2015, both times considering most of it to be within constitutionality. The upcoming case raises a new question about the constitutionality of the law's individual mandate program, which provides most Americans to either buy health insurance or pay a penalty. It's like telling you tomorrow you must buy a soft taco at Taco Bell or face a government fine, or you must drive an American-made car or you pay a fine, or you must dance in the public square at noon in but a miniskirt and a halter top, or pay a fine. The Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate back in 2012 in a case known as National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius. In that case, Chief Justice John Roberts disagreed with the Obama administration. Wait, what? He disagreed with the Democrats? That's very odd for you, Justice Roberts. Anyway, Chief Justice Roberts disagreed with the Obama administration, which argued that the mandate was a penalty, but Roberts upheld the provisions as effectively being a tax. Back in 2017, Republicans in Congress, who had been gunning to eliminate Obamacare, set the individual mandate penalty 
to a whopping zero dollars. And because the penalty is zero, Texas and other red states have argued it is no longer permissible as a tax. You can't have a tax rate of zero. It's no longer a tax. Further, they say, because the individual mandate is now unconstitutional, the entire law must be eliminated. A federal district court in Texas and the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals sided with Republican-led states, saying the individual mandate is indeed unconstitutional. The district court said that as a result, the entire law must fall, while the appeals court did not address the latter point conclusively. The appeals court said, quote, The individual mandate is unconstitutional because it can no longer be read as a tax, and there is no other constitutional provision that justifies this exercise of congressional power, unquote. So there's a question of severability. Can one part of the law be severed or cut away from the whole law? Or if one part is unconstitutional, does the entire law become unconstitutional? The panel added that whether its mandate was severable or could be separated from the rest of the law is an open question left by the appeals court. It may still be that none of the ACA is severable from the individual mandate, even after this inquiry is concluded. It may be that all of the Affordable Care Act is severable from the individual mandate. It may also be that some of the ACA is severable and some is not. Health care activists are worried that the court, with a 6-3 majority to the conservative, will finally scrap the law. One can only hope. Wendell Potter, no relation to Harry, said, I'm really quite nervous. He's a former executive at the health insurance company Cigna, and he has spent over 10 years advocating for liberal health care reforms. There have been so many close calls, certainly when John McCain saved the day a few years ago, Potter said, referring to the late GOP senator's 2017 thumbs-down vote on repeal of the individual mandate. That threat now, with the change in the makeup of the Supreme Court, is really unnerving. Which further goes to prove that John McCain was a Republican in name only and should have been drummed out of office. And of course, what liberal commentary would be complete without a bashing of Amy Coney Barrett? She is a justice now, folks. You gotta leave her alone. She's on there for life. Barrett, it says, an academic for most of her career, has been critical of the Supreme Court's reasoning in upholding Obamacare in the previous cases that have come before it, though she has not addressed the legal question in the present case. She said during her confirmation hearings that she would approach the case with an open mind and I firmly believe she would do so. Views on severability, unlike the questions raised in the earlier cases, do not obviously split along partisan lines. The last term, three of the court's conservatives suggested in a case unrelated to Obamacare that their views on severability could be favorable to Democrats in this health care case. Brett Kavanaugh, the justice appointed earlier by Mr. Trump, said in an opinion in which he was joined by Roberts and Samuel Alito, wrote that the courts should generally sever an offending provision from a broader law if the rest of the law can function independently. Kavanaugh wrote it was fairly unusual for the remainder of a law to not be able to do so. Constitutional litigation is not a game of gotcha against Congress where litigants can ride a discrete constitutional flaw in a statute to take down a whole otherwise constitutional statute, Kavanaugh wrote. According to some legal scholars, 
the thought needs to be put into the justices' minds to weigh the intent of Congress when it enacted Obamacare. It was noted that the individual mandate was one part of Obamacare's so-called three-legged stool. At the time Congress passed the ACA, Democrats argued that the individual mandate was, quote, essential, unquote, in order for the other two aspects of the law to function. Its requirement that insurers provide coverage to those with pre-existing conditions and subsidies to make insurance affordable. How can Congress ever have intended, goes the argument, for the two legs of that stool to stand without the third leg being the individual mandate. Congress's decision in 2017 to lower the individual mandate penalty to zero without scrapping the entire law cuts in an opposite direction of that theory. Some legal scholars say not only did the legislators seem to intend for the law to continue to operate, but it has continued to operate, at least arguably, we haven't seen the death spiral that was the reason behind the mandate. There is that thought process that since the law has stood ground without the individual mandate, it can survive on the basis of severability. Now, these are not easy questions. They're not the kind of questions that I have the legal scholarly background to properly adjudicate. But that's why we have a Supreme Court, boys and girls. And that's why we have a Supreme Court boys and girls. Because of COVID-19, tomorrow's opening arguments will be conducted by phone and streamed live to the public. They begin tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. If you're referencing and keeping score at home, it is the Supreme Court case known as California v. Texas, number 19-840. And I so look forward to that. Even if Trump is out, dumping the Obamacare plan would really make me feel good. And that's a wrap for this midday edition of The Truth Hurts Program with Steve Z for Monday, November 9th, 2020. And as our world continues to turn, I will continue to speak the truth. And remember, sometimes the truth hurts. We'll see you next time. Well, how y'all doing? My name is Big Jake. For over 35 years, I was the snow plowingest brother trucker on the road. I could plow 10 feet high of snow from an interstate highway at 65 miles an hour and never break a sweat. Due to budget cuts this year in Minnesota, I was laid off. But it wasn't the worst thing that could have happened to an old fart like me. Now I plow for another company. The Big Jake Anti-Antifa Plow Company. Yes, if your highway is blocked with a bunch of anarchist protesters, just call Big Jake. I'll plow them down and not even blink. Blood and guts wash off after all, and my big rig needs a bath anyway. So if you can't get downtown because a bunch of whiny asses has traffic stopped, give me a call with the location and I'll shove this 60,000 pounds of big rig and plow right up their rears. I'll blow the train horn as a courtesy, but I don't use my brakes when I'm a plowing. Look me up on the dark web. Big Jake Anti-Antifa Plow Company. Rolling over the highway 
for you. Thank you for listening to the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. This is the College of Common Sense at the University of Universal Understanding. We hope that you have learned something worthwhile from today's presentation, and we invite you to share it with family, friends, co-workers, and even those you do not particularly care for. Programs like The Truth Hurts with Steve Z are amongst our most cherished rights in a, so far, free nation. Let us hope that freedom can be continued. This program is protected free speech under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. We apologize if you are offended, but we retract nothing. This recorded work is copyright 2020 and is the property of Steve Knight Productions, all rights reserved. The Truth Hurts program is produced at Studio 63 in association with Steve Knight Productions. And background music is provided by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Again, we thank you for listening. Thank you.